Griffiths again. Good play by Gamland again. James McFadden scores for Scotland. France are stunned and Scotland lead in Paris. Welcome to the Pure Football Podcast, unbiased, in-depth Scottish. My name is Owen Brown and I'm your co-host today. With me is Gavin Miller, Pure Football founder and football recruitment consultant with the Market Insights organisation. Gavin, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good, Owen. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm great. We've uh, just had a quick uh, half-hour Monday night football live stream on Twitch, Twitter and Facebook. Thanks to those that joined in and, and do look out you know, for more of those in the near future. It was really nice to be able to engage with people. Um, and on today's podcast, though, we're, we're going to discuss a couple of kind of set topics. So we've got uh, Ross County's incredible 4-1 win over Aberdeen from Saturday. The um, less than incredible 0-0 draw between top of the table Manchester United and title holders Liverpool in the English Premier League. And finally, Gavin and I are going to give our quick kind of mid-season report card score um, out of 10 for all of the Scottish Premiership clubs. Um, but yeah, let's let's kick off with Ross County against Aberdeen. So with this result, Ross County rose off the bottom of the Scottish Premiership with their first home, ling- sorry, first home league win since the opening day of the season. It's the second win that they've had in six games under John Hughes since he took charge last month and has moved them up to, what, 10th spot in the table now. Um, so just wanted to know, did you see this coming from John Hughes before kickoff? Did you see this coming at all, Gavin? Uh, no, I've been very surprised with John Hughes' performance as Ross County manager. He's been out of work since a pretty disastrous spell with Rafe Rovers where he only lasted 15 games back in 2017. Um, you have to go back to sort of 2014-15 for the last good season that he had as manager and that was a really impressive season leading Inverness to third spot um, and some European football which is an incredible achievement uh, and I guess that does show that when Hughes gets things right there there can be an opportunity to to develop a team and I think he's regarded as a sort of a bubbly likable type character which is interesting to me because he doesn't always come across that way um, and he tries to play <laughs> football in the right way I guess try maybe being the key word but yeah I think it was a, a bit of a left field appointment um, I don't think many people other than John Hughes thought John Hughes could, could get the gig so fair play to him and a, a fairly positive start from mm, what about you? Okay. Um, I guess for me, it's maybe a bit early to put any sort of conclusions on things. Let, let's maybe wait a few more games and then I'll give some sort of verdict about exactly how it's going for him. Um, but yeah, I, I, certainly in terms of results, it's been an improvement, right? Um, it's pretty incredible to see them move off the bottom. I have to kind of caveat that with the fact that, you know, the number of games that teams have played are, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, Hamilton bottom now, but have a game in hand and are only a point behind Ross County. Motherwell, second bottom, have two games in hand and are one point behind. So th- things could change again, you know, in terms of the league position. But certainly there's some um, some positives, I think, for Ross County fans to take from the early moments of John Hughes being in charge. Um, in terms of this match against Aberdeen, 
take us through, Gavin, any kind of notable details from the lineups from both sides, anything that kind of stuck out to you? Yeah, so it was interesting to see how Ross County were going to fare in this game in terms of setup. Obviously, Ross Stewart was out, um, but we spoke before about their defensive structural issues where it was sort of pretty easy to play through them. Um, so I was interested to see how that was going to going to go. And I, I like the technical ability in the middle of, of Vigers uh, lacking in Peyton, but I did worry whether Aberdeen were going to just try and out-muscle them and be very physical in this game. Mm. Um and it was interesting to me as well that Stephen Kelly dropped out for this game. I'm not sure if he maybe had some sort of knock or, or something, but it was interesting that he dropped out. Um, I also find it really interesting that, um, you know, the, the fullback choice or the wingback choices from Aberdeen with Matty Kennedy on the left and, and Johnny Hayes on, on the right, just for a bit of banter. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think in terms of, if you were to say where, where was the strength going to come from Ross County, you could see that down the side of Naismith, Peyton and Hilton was where they were going to try and play. And mm. uh, it felt like that was a major mismatch. And I thought Ross McCory was going to be in for a bit of a game, uh, having to cover a lot of gaps and distance um, for Kennedy, who, whilst he's athletic and mobile, he's maybe not the most defensive aware. Um, mm. So, yeah. Uh, and the only other quick thing I thought was the persistence with Curtis Main and Cosgrove as a two um, mm. to me you're playing two players that have got very similar strengths. So I don't quite get how that works. Um, and it's quite a predictable way to play as well, that you're just going to shell balls into the box. Uh, so, yeah. What about you? Give, what was give, your uh, the, the choice of Main and Cosgrove together as well gives a, a lot of work to the wingbacks to do. So, yeah, the first thing about the wingbacks that stuck out for me, uh, similarly to you, was the fact that they were swap sides. So, like you said, Johnny... He's playing as right wing back initially in this match. They did switch later on. Um, and Matty Kenny playing as uh, left wing back, which which was strange. I wasn't too sure what the thinking behind that was exactly. Uh, um, but yeah, particularly when you're set up as effectively a 3-4-1-2. Uh, Scott Wright was playing kind of behind Main and Cosgrove. So there's no real width apart from the two wing backs. So you're asking them to contribute a huge deal in kind of multiple phases of the game. You know, got to be switched on defensively. Um, try not to leave too much space behind you, which we'll come on to uh, swiftly, um, but also, you know, provide the width and attack and um, a hell of a lot of work to do for them. So that was one thing that stood out to me and, and particularly with them playing on the wrong side, you know, you, you, it just, I, I wasn't too sure what to think of that given the amount of work they'd have and that they would naturally be wanted to kind of come in field onto their better foot. So strange one. Um, aside from that, yeah, wanted to see how... Um, Ross County would do without Ross Stewart, um, who's still out with a hamstring injury. Um, those were the kind of main things that stuck out for me. But let's move on to the actual action itself. And it didn't take long in this match for them to be some pretty uh, decisive action. In fact, after just one minute, Ross County opened the scoring. Uh, and the goal, was fair to say, was a disaster for Aberdeen. Can you take me through, Gavin, what kind of happened for this goal? Yeah, uh, so... Uh, early on, Charles Cook applies some pressure on Andy Considine, who's uh, hugging the touchline. Um, not really the position that I want Andy Considine to be in, to be perfectly honest. I didn't understand why he was there. Um, so he then gives the ball away to Ian Vigers, who sort of picks the ball up, carries it forward, and drives into what feels like a bit of a an absolute chasm of space. Um <laughs> 
and uh, Ross McCorry's sort of caught in two minds whether to go pressure the ball on Vigers or whether to stick with. I think it's Harry Payton that's making the, the sort of forward run into the box. So felt for McCrory there because I think uh, it was yourself that posted the sort of screenshot of uh, where Johnny Hayes was um, and the and the gaps there. So it was, you know, I guess it was just a sort of sign of things to come. Um, there's mm. a bit of a stramash in the box and a nightmare from Tommy Hoban, who I've actually been quite impressed with and was just bigging him up just before last week. So I might need to redact that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's an absolute nightmare in the box from Hoban, right? And uh, the ball sort of eventually breaks to Ollie Shaw and it's it's a lovely finish uh, from mm-hmm. Ollie Shaw into the, the bottom corner and, and Joe Lewis has got no chance. And I think probably couldn't have been any more of a disastrous start from Aberdeen in terms of individual errors, um, people all over the place, people not understanding the roles, positional issues um but yeah mm. I, I want to just just quickly get your thoughts so what did you think of the i guess the two sort of starting things a, a goal doesn't happen just from the finish but um what was your thoughts on why andy constantine was on the the sort of touchline and well, where was johnny hayes sure so andy constantine was on a touchline because he was taking a throw in which um it was it kind of stood out to me for a few reasons. I feel like I've maybe been going on about throw-ins a wee bit over the last couple of podcasts. So stop me if it sounds like I've subscribed to the Thomas Gronemark, um training plan for throw-ins. You know the guy that's revolutionised the way Liverpool take their throw-ins. But yeah, um, that, that that that's kind of one of the issues here. That it's Considine, the left centre back of the three that's kind of about taking your throw-in. Um, it, it means that things are a bit exposed. But I want to draw it back a little bit before then, um, because the first thing that struck me about this game is that Aberdeen come out this uh, from kickoff at 100 miles an hour, you know, straight out of the traps, which is fine. I mean, obviously, you want your team to be aggressive and, and you know, hit hard and so on. But I think we've spoken before on the podcast about our, our kind of wondering, I guess, whether... You know, that's the kind of big message that the manager gives right before the start of the game. You know, I want everybody to be going 100% today, you know, give everything. And I want to see that right from the offset. Sometimes there can be a benefit to stepping back and showing a little bit of patience and a wee bit of control um, just to let the game kind of play itself out um, and then, you know, putting the pedal down. If you kind of go out the traps at 100 mile an hour, then... Maybe it's very easy for gaps to appear quickly and for things to go slightly wrong. So that was an issue here. In in terms of the goal, right, so there's a a throw-in. And and keep in mind, this is like, you know, 20 seconds into the game. Um, There's a throw-in on the left side for Aberdeen. And they take a relatively long time to take the throw-in. It's about 11 seconds. Um, and once they do, there's only one option for them, um, for Constein, which is Lewis Ferguson, to play him the ball. Kennedy is further up the left wing as our main and Cosgrove. So that's already three men ahead of the ball out of the picture, basically. On the other side, you've got Johnny Hayes. And the reason he's maybe leaving a chasm of space behind him is because, you know, he thinks he should be an option on the other flank um, in case, you know, they get the ball up the pitch and then they're going to try and make a chance, basically. So again, he's got that whole flank to cover. He's got to be the attacker and the the defender. Um, But yeah, Considine... I wouldn't necessarily want my left-sided centre-back to be taken. This throw-in there, you know, I would want maybe a bit more settled structure. Um, and then if you are going to do it, you need more options for him. Um, and Constantine and Ferguson kind of mess up a wee bit in terms of trying to play out sort of one-two with each other to get out of trouble. 
Ferguson showing a, a little bit of a headless chicken act there, in my view, you know, instead of maybe taking the easy option and just knocking it back to one of the other defenders or the keeper. Um, and then, yeah, Hayes and Kennedy too far at the back. Um, and and there's all that kind of space to exploit. The, the other thing that kind of struck it uh, struck me about this, um, and it goes to what you were saying about Tommy Hoban, the kind of disaster in the box, is that Aberdeen kind of strike me as being man marking outside the box, which can have its difficulties. But inside the box, it's like everybody abandons the idea, where is my man? And they all just get drawn to the ball and collapse on the ball. And then Ollie Shaw, of course, had a wee bit of time and space and a beautiful finish. So it's weird that kind of contrast where it's man marking outside the box, but inside um, everybody's running at the ball. But anyway, yeah, those were the, the kind of things I kind of picked out about the goal. Anything else you want to add on to that, Gavin? But I, I thought that, you know, there were, there were system issues there, um, but also just that lack of control and calmness, you know, and, and wanting to go too fast from the start for me. Absolutely. I think you, you've summarised that pretty well there. I think uh, some some real positives, I guess, from, from Ross County, though, like they still had to attack Absolutely. the space. They still had to turn the ball over. Um, yep. You know, there, there's some smart runs. I think it was, Harry, like I said, Harry Payton's run that has mm. McCrory caught in two minds. So positives yep. from Ross County from the offset, disaster from Aberdeen. Absolutely. Ross County's pressing and, and awareness of where the second balls were and so on were really good um, throughout the game. Um, there were quite a lot more chances for both sides after this, um, but Ross County ended up being 2-1 up at the halftime break. Um, the second goal kind of stood out to me as well. Just going to speak about it briefly because it has some similarities to the first goal in some ways. Um, so again, um, the highlights would just show um, Johnny Hayes being out of the picture. Um, there's a kind of cross to the back post, um, and there's no nobody there. You know, he's kind of vacated the space. Nobody's with his man, and it's an easy finish. But if you watch what led up to the goal, um, uh, there's um, a kind of Hayes has the ball on the right side, um, kind of about the halfway line, and he's trying to do a give and go with Ross McCrory. Um, so he plays it inside to Ross McCrory, and Hayes starts on a sprint up the wing um, for the the one-two. But McCrory decides instead um, to play it inside to Lewis Ferguson in the centre circle. Um, so Hayes is way ahead of the play. He's, he's sprinted ahead. And then Lewis Ferguson makes a bit of a blunder and loses the ball. Um, and Hayes... I have to be a bit critical here. He just kind of stands and watches in frustration at that point. He doesn't really speed back. But again, it's not necessarily, you know, Hayes doesn't do great in that kind of situation. But again, the expectation of somebody in that wing-back role where you've got to contribute to the attack and the defence, if something goes wrong um, and the ball gets lost, it is going to be your space that's there. You know, it's kind of inevitable. So, you know, the, there's kind of reasons and there are systemic reasons for me, one of the issues with having a 3-4-1-2. Um, but anyway, yeah, um, after that, Ross County, um, in the second half, they added a third um, in the 84th minute. And that was Ollie Shaw's second goal of the game. Gavin, do, do you want to kind of talk us through that goal and, and also just any thoughts about Ollie Shaw in, in general, um, given he got two goals in this match? Yeah, I thought he had a, a lot of nice movement in this game. Dropped into deeper areas to receive the ball. He let midfielders run, uh, run beyond him. Um, I think sometimes the strikers, especially in a team that's struggling, you can maybe try a little bit too hard and, and try and do everything yourself. Um, maybe try and force the issue. But I felt there was an element of composure about his performance, an element of understanding about what he was being asked to do. Um, and I thought that he'd done a, a particularly good job in terms of leading the line he won headers he put pressure on the opposition 
I thought he'd done a nice job of moving into the sort of half spaces. Um, a, a really interesting player. I think that uh, I've got a feeling that John Hughes is going to get a real um, turnout of him, um, just mm. the way that things are going, the way that Ross County have started to play. I think it, it's it's good to see. And um, I think, you know, before the goal itself, you can see there's the confidence in the player as well. I think there's the, I don't know if you remember the chance where he has the sort of half folly in the sort of Van Basten area. That um, wasn't a million miles away, but just the confidence to you know take that on rather than try and win a corner or whatever. Um, it can be viewed two ways, right? You could view it as a, a wasteful XG shot, um, but I'm going to give him the credit and say that he was confident and, and wanted to try and take it on. So, uh, yeah. Um, but in terms of the, the third goal, I thought it's a lovely finish from him again. Um, there's definitely some errors again from Aberdeen. Uh, I think... Shea Logan completely loses all his shot and he's got enough space to sort of uh, swivel his body and change his body shape really quickly and get a, a nice finish into the into the bottom corner again. I think it was it was a two lovely finishes from Sean and ones that you know he should be proud of. I think he's shown some technical ability in terms of uh, in the box. He doesn't seem to to be someone that's just trying to hit it as hard as he possibly can. Or you know I think there's there's definitely some uh, quality there and. Looks like a nice pickup from from Ross County and and hopefully someone they can continue to develop. So yeah, big tick for Ollie Shaw from me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's um, maybe a wee bit of a surprise to me that he's ended up there, but it's a really good pickup for them. Shaw's somebody. Um, if any listeners haven't read them, there's um, a series of blogs by Jason, whose uh, Twitter handle is the Jers Report. Uh, Rangers fan does a lot of statistical analysis about Rangers, but also about Scottish football as well. And one of the kind of blog series he has is where he um, tries to unearth the kind of next striking prospects in Scotland by looking at data from reserve football, youth football and so on, um, which is quite an undertaking given the kind of difficulty in terms of finding that information. But through that, he's been able to kind of highlight, um, you know, the kind of goals per 90 rate of various people at a very young age and then maybe applies um, some sort of weighting uh, depending on the age. So, you know, somebody that's 17 getting, you know, X amount of goals per 90 would be graded higher than somebody that's 19 doing the same. Anyway, Ollie Shaw was one of the people that he kind of picked out a number of seasons ago as being very high, um, you know, kind of elite level for Scotland in terms of the scoring rate he was getting um, at that level. Um, so it's interesting to see him, you know, now he, he did get some chances as a young teenager at Hibs, you know, maybe got more football even as a, a very young uh, man than some other managers are inclined to give uh, young forwards in Scotland. But, you know, obviously hasn't worked out fully for him at Hibs, um, despite how well, you know, he was considered. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to see him perhaps uh, hit the ground running um, in this period at Ross County. And I think that's got to be encouraging for Ross County fans, particularly if maybe there's a possibility that Ross Stewart might move on in the summer. They've got that kind of, you know, succession in place and they picked up another um, good young forward. So well done to them. Um, in terms of the other bits of the match, well, the goal scoring didn't stop there for Ross County. So a fourth goal came in the 90th minute. And what, what I guess I'd want to know at this point, Gavin, is do you see anything that looks a bit different under Hughes so far? Is this just a bit of a lucky run of some decent results that people are maybe wrong to attribute to a kind of mythical new manager bounce? Or is he correcting course at Dingwall in any sort of meaningful way, in your view? It can be a little bit of all of that, right? Um, I think that 
you know, uh, if we go back to, I think it was Stuart Kettlewell's comments after they got beat by Motherwell, um, where he basically threw the players right under the bus. Um, I think, you know, having someone come in that, you know, maybe is a little bit more arm around the shoulder, um, building people up, praising people like John Hughes is, is supposedly like, I think that's, a, you know, can potentially have a positive impact on the, the mental state of players, believing in their own ability. Obviously, we just spoke about Ollie Shaw thinking he's Van Basten. Um, <laughs> so, so that can be part of it. I think there is there are some gradual improvements in terms of, of structure. Uh, I don't think they're being as cut open as easily as they were. Um, I looked at their XG performances in the last few games and things certainly seem a lot tighter, which is, is positive. Um Obviously, there's there's more to it than just the raw XG itself. You have to watch the full game, and that's not something I've been able to do yet. But I would say, just looking at the numbers, there's there are some positives there. Um, I think that you know in this game they've done a good job of of sort of trying to to limit Aberdeen's chances and to just crosses into the box. And um, I think they were quite structured when they everyone knew what they were they were going to do. I think that you also seen players sort of throwing themselves putting their bodies on the line quickly out to try and block uh, opportunities as well. So some positives there. Um, I did find it interesting as well that there's been a bit of a focus on bringing in more players that want to get on the ball. So Tony Andrew, for example, um, I thought that, you know, maybe there's a requirement for a defensive presence, someone that's a little bit more sturdy and solid. But I, I, I thought about it and I think that, looking at what Hughes has done so far, it looks like they want to try and play uh, good football where they can. And I'm not saying that they're Barcelona or anything like that. I just mean that there's there appears to be a bit of a plan. There appears to be a bit of an idea around about what they want to do. And I think uh, Jason Naismith's going to turn out to be an excellent pickup for them. I thought he looked you know, like he was getting back to himself. And the midfield three are, are really interesting. Um, one or two upgrades away from from being able to pull themselves out of trouble, in my opinion. But it's still early days, as you sort of alluded to, but positives for John Hughes and positives for Ross Kearney. Yeah, I'd absolutely echo that. Um, a, a great result for them and some positives. I think, for me, the things that stood out was the the pressing in wide areas, very aggressive. I don't know if that was maybe partly just because it was Aberdeen. They felt that there was uh, things to gain in terms of doing that. Um and you know maybe pulling the centre backs out wide and and so on. And the other thing I, I noticed as well was they were very quick to get to second balls. Um, you know again don't really know whether that's something that they've particularly focused on or or whether you know you, you really can um, in a, a meaningful way um, or maybe there's you know mentality uh, shift um, in terms of doing that or maybe it was just. You know, a lucky day. Maybe Aberdeen were not particularly at it in terms of doing those things, or maybe Aberdeen just leave a lot of space, so you naturally can get to the second balls quicker. But either way, um, Ross County certainly seemed to be kind of getting to the ball quicker and, and more aggressively, which was part of uh, the reason they were able to get this uh, brilliant, brilliant result for them. In terms of Aberdeen, though, well, I mean, it's obviously a dire afternoon for them, and it featured awful defending. Poor centre forward play as well, I thought, and also multiple injuries. They had a couple of players that went off injures, injured, and as of course led um, from frustrated Aberdeen fans to calls for Derek McInnes to be dismissed. Um, but th- they're six points off second place, so surely not, Gavin. Um, I mean, is it time for a change? Could Aberdeen even afford one if they want to? Who would replace him? 
what your thoughts about uh, that kind of aspect of things? So I think for me, the, the answer is pretty simple. I don't think it's time for change. Uh, and the reason behind that is that what's your ambitions if you're Aberdeen, right? What, what's your ceiling? What's your scope? You're Realistically, you're not going to win the league. So third, fourth positives in the Cups, that's all you can really ask for. And, and I think McInnes will continue to deliver those. I think you would say that you want to see development of players. Well, you've just sold Scott McKenna this season for £3 million. So there's positive there. There's positive around about the performances of Lewis Ferguson. You've got young players in McCrory, McLennan, Campbell, Kennedy, um, who are all still you know, young assets that you can continue to develop. But I think there does need to be a change in the strike partnership and potentially the formation under Derek McInnes. Those two things, if you change the setup, uh, Aberdeen haven't always put, played with back three under McInnes. Um, and I, I don't think that playing Curtis Main and Sam Cosgrove, um, which is a bit of like a like a doppelganger centre forward um, between those two. But uh, yeah, I think there's opportunities to to continue improve Aberdeen. Um, and I'm not sure changing the manager is the, is the way that you improve Aberdeen. Um, who do you get, right? I don't see anyone that's out there right now where I'd be like, yep, that's the guy. That's the guy that can take Aberdeen forward, can take the next step. And there's not the investment really there to push for second, right? Let's just call it how it is. Um, so, yeah, I think that whilst I can understand the frustration of Aberdeen fans and it might feel a little bit stale. And I think previously I've I've said that McInnes has has maybe become a little bit uh, stagnant. I think in terms of reality, Aberdeen are doing what Aberdeen should be doing. And um, yeah, the, the scope for improvement is within his his sort of uh, control as well. Hmm. I, I, I kind of see where you're coming from uh, uh, about that, Gavin. I guess though... Um, it's a tough watch, I would say, if I'm an Aberdeen fan. And I think Aberdeen fans would, you know, accept and acknowledge that, you know, being third and, you know, having reasonable cut runs is a, a positive. But it doesn't mean people can't want a bit more from watching their football game, right? Um, and I, I, I just, you know, I, I despair sometimes watching the, the, the Aberdeen games and the style of football and the market, the man marking and, and just the, the kind of system and setup. So I, I think it would not necessarily be a bad thing um, if there was a change in management. Um, you've pointed to the fact that there's quite a lot of assets in terms of players. So you would hope that maybe means that, you know, ideally there's some pieces in place that mean that they're not going to see some sort of decline immediately. Um, I, I, I don't know. I kind of have the feeling that the new um, kind of setup. You know, uh, Cormac and the people from Atlanta United and so on. I think that probably they might be quite interested in changing things up a wee bit. You know, maybe kind of modernising the structure, maybe having a different manager. But I don't think there would be the financial appetite to do those kind of things right now, um, just with too many unknowns and COVID and and the kind of the cost that that might have. So I, I I guess what I'm saying probably is that Aberdeen fans are probably stuck with McInnes for the while, um, at least until maybe he makes a decision um, about it. But um, I don't know. 
don't like what I'm watching when, when I see them too much and I can understand the frustrations that the fans have. Um, but hey, there we are. Um, in, in terms of uh, Ross County versus Aberdeen, that's kind of everything for, for us. Um, but yeah, just the echo. Phenomenal result for uh, Ross County and a, a disastrous one for Aberdeen. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in their respective uh, games coming up uh, later on this week. Our next feature for today's podcast is to go to England and talk about Liverpool versus Manchester United. So this was first in the league, uh, Manchester United versus the title holders um, in Liverpool. And Manchester United maybe catching Liverpool at a good time, uh, goalless in their last two matches. There were a few surprises in the lineups. Um, talk me through anything, Gavin, in terms of your expectations for the game and the lineups, formations, game plans, any thoughts on those? Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, let's start with Liverpool. There's a few surprises. Jordan Henderson dropping to centre-back. Um, you know, I think that's, whilst they've obviously got a bit of an injury crisis with Van Dijk and uh, Matip and, and uh, Gomez, I couldn't forget his name, um, all, all out, I think you understand. But I thought potentially... You know, it's a bit of a risk playing a, a central midfielder. You know, Fabinho and Henderson as your as your two centre backs. Um, Shakiri coming in. Uh, he obviously got two assists against Aston Villa, so I'm guessing rewarded for that performance in those thirty minutes against Aston Villa. So those things sort of stood out to me in terms of the the Liverpool aspects of it. Um, I was interested to see Pogba's position. Um, mm. So he played a little bit more advanced than normal. Um, but then when I looked at Pogba's sort of data, um, he's actually one of the best players at pressing in the in the Premier League, uh, which is, is surprising. In terms of attempts um, and effort, he's got uh, 12.1 offensive duels per 90 minutes, and I think he's sitting at about a 60% win rate as well. So I kind of understood maybe that they're trying to press Liverpool aggressively with pushing Pogba in there. I don't know if that's that's maybe me you know, one plus one equaling three or whatever the saying is. Um, but I, I, that's what I, I thought. And also, I thought potentially maybe what you're going to do is you're going to play Pogba uh, against Robertson in the sort of aerial battle uh, and let Pogba dominate that. Not that that's mm. a, a more, you know, a way that I would really describe Man U, but I just wondered if these were things they were going to try and do to exploit Liverpool. Um, it, it obviously... Uh, you know, you can read into these things as much as you like and, and draw your own conclusions. But that was my sort of thoughts on the on the two sort of lineups. What about you? Uh, yeah, there's some interesting thoughts there, Gavin. Um, I hadn't really thought about the idea of Pogba being played in that role because of his potential aerial superiority against Robertson. But it's it's something to think about. I mean, he definitely was played. He was played as a right midfielder, basically, which was very strange to me as a decision. Um, I. I I take your point about the data maybe suggesting that he presses a lot. I'm not necessarily sure that I would accept that that means that he's good at it or, or that it's really um, necessarily meaning exactly what the data might might suggest. But hey, um, f- fair enough. Um, I didn't think it really worked um, in the game uh, in terms of um, his matchup with Robertson, there were we'll come on to it, but there were multiple times uh, that Robertson was kind of free 
um, as a result of you know Pogba perhaps not tracking back or, or losing him. Um, but yeah, it was an inter- that was certainly an interesting aspect to the lineups to see um, Pogba being played at right back midfield. Um, the other thing you mentioned, the centre midfielders at centre back. Well, yeah, that was uh, really really interesting to me. Um, Fabinho, we know, has played you know previously for Liverpool at centre back and has been brilliant there. Um, Henderson, it's not his first game playing there for them at centre back, but um, it's, it's certainly not his natural position. And I, I think it's fair to say that um, in terms of the loss of you know the other defenders, Van Dijk in particular, it's not just about the defensive things that they lose from him. It's you know the passing from the back and so on. So it was really interesting for me to watch how that went for them. Um, and during the match, there were moments in time where Liverpool um, had Thiago dropping back between the two centre-backs as well to form somewhat a back three in possession. So it was three central midfielders playing as uh, the central defenders at, at points, um, which, I, I don't know, you could potentially say that as, I mean, it's not the first time uh, that the last couple of seasons in football have uh, changed the expectations from a centre-back. You know, they've become playmakers in effect, but that was pretty interesting to me that, that not not only was it people having to play make from the back, but it was a full complement of three guys who are really central midfielders. Um, the the other things I guess that stood out to me were that um, Jota was out with this knee problem still, um, and you know Liverpool have been somewhat misfiring. So two draws, Newcastle and West Bromwich of all teams, and a loss to Southampton in the last three league games. Um, whereas Manchester United have three wins in a row in the league from Burnley, Aston Villa and Wolves. Um, so it was interesting to see if Liverpool might be able to get a bit more of a spark going forward. And, and I guess, as you said, Shakiri was in the team, perhaps rewarded from you know the, the output that he got from with those couple of assists. Um, maybe he has a bit more of ability to break down a defence than maybe some of the other midfielders. But it was interesting for me to see exactly what position he'd be playing, You know whether this was a change to some sort of 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1 or whatever, but turned out that he was in effect playing almost just as a, a central midfielder. So that was a another uh, quite interesting detail too. Um, in, in terms of the uh, game itself, well, Thiago um, dominated early events with his passing and press resistance and dribbling and his kind of ease at dropping between the lines. As I said, even going back to centre-back to dictate from very deep, but then at other points being on the edge of the opposition box. And he he was very influential in the kind of opening stages that first 20 minutes. What sort of options do you think, you know, as an opposition manager or tactician to try and sort of stifle a player like him if you're in Manchester United's shoes? Let's be clear, first of all, far more qualified performance analysts than me have tried to solve that question. Um, the guy's an incredible talent, right? He's just phenomenal in what he can do. His ability to play on the on the half turn, his football IQ is just next level in terms of, of what he sees whilst it's developing. Um, I think he's just a, a, an awesome player who, you, you know, it's hard to not be in complete awe of. Um, I think he's a difficult player to try and shut down. So I tried to think about what would I try and do? And it's it's difficult when you're playing against a team like Liverpool, right? When you've got so many individually talented players. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'd try and do is I, I would try and really keep the passing lanes tight, have them really blocked off uh, and try and force Thiago to play passes into areas that I'm comfortable with where the possession is going to be. 
I think that's obviously a lot easier said than done because a lapse in concentration, if you're going to ask one person to pick a lock from deep, Tiago's probably up there. Um, so mm. it's a difficult one to do. So you're needing high levels of concentration. You're needing people to know exactly where they need to be off the ball. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm wanting to try and force them into sort of areas that I'm comfortable where the ball is um, and, and almost show him to go there um, rather than, uh, you know, um, potentially press. I think if you try and press him too aggressively, he turns so quickly uh, and he can react very quickly to that pressure. So it would worry me that if you tried to aggressively pursue him, that it might backfire. Sure, I think that's a very uh, kind of fair response to that, Gavin. When I was kind of thinking about this, similar to you, I was kind of thinking about how difficult it would be. And what kind of popped into my head was an analogy that I think it was Rafa Benitez that I first heard kind of use this analogy, which was the the small duvet um, analogy for defensive systems. So I guess the way you think about it is, let's say the pitch is your bed, a kind of king-size bed, but your players, your kind of team when defending are a duvet, which is kind of one size too small for the bed. And essentially, you know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be a bit of a gap somewhere that you can't cover that gets cold. Um, you know, so you're kind of sacrificing one thing in order to, you know, prevent or protect the other thing. Um, the, the, that That is kind of, you know, Rafa Benitez's way of um, describing that to, to the media. And that's absolutely the case with Thiago, right? So um, you add an extra player into midfield to maybe man-mark him or, you know, whatever. Maybe he just moves wide and pulls that player of yours out into irrelevance and another Liverpool midfielder then becomes the danger or he stays in the middle and now there's more space for Robertson and Alexander-Arnold, you know, fullback. But like, as you said, I think it's important not to let him kind of skip past you, so don't overcommit, but you also need to get close enough that you can put pressure on the ball and um, maybe kind of try and uh, help him into passing into the areas that you're most comfortable with. So, yeah, I think that's a... A fair response to a very, very difficult um, uh, challenge for, for any kind of football managers, uh, Gavin. Uh, in, in terms of beyond that kind of opening phase of the game, um, Manchester United didn't attempt a shot until 34 minutes in. Um, but Liverpool, um, despite having multiple shots up until that point, I think they'd taken eight shots at the half-hour mark. They hadn't actually had any on target at all um, at that stage. Um, the front three of Mane, Salah and Firmino, they weren't quite clicking together. Um, could you see any specific reasons for that at all in the game, Gavin? I thought that there was a, a number of really strong defensive performances from, from Man United. I thought McTominay and Fred done a really good job of sort of hassling them, uh, putting them under pressure. I thought uh, McTominay and Fred both done a, a really good job in that. I think they both had um, five tackles, one each, which doesn't sound like a huge amount, but I think uh, that was the most out of any sort of two players in the in the full game. So five clear tackles turned over and uh, I think Maguire and Shaw done really well to, to, to communicate with each other and knew how to to block spaces and knew where each other had to be. It, I just felt like it was a very well-drilled defensive performance from, from Manu at times. And I think, I thought that Shakiri, Salah and Arnold at times were far too close to each other. I thought that, um, and then Firmino drifting all into that sort of one space, it just became 
easy for Man U to sort of hmm. keep uh, Liverpool sort of at arm's length, um, which for me it was, you know, you could say that's either down to how um, Man U have played or, you know, have forced them into those areas, or is it that Jurgen Klopp's picked players that all want to be in similar positions? Um, especially, I, I don't know if I love Shakiri in the middle. I don't think I particularly like him in that in that zone. Um, but I thought, you know, it, from from a Man U perspective, and I was thinking about this, I think if you try and get too involved in 1v1 battles versus Liverpool, that's where you might struggle. Whereas if you play as a defensive collective unit, that's where you can have success. Because uh, whilst Liverpool have got an, an excellent system and, and way of playing, I think as long as you don't get too caught up into 1v1 battles and you're continually aware of where you need to be and what you need to do, that's the best way to keep them, again, at arm's length. And we sort of seen that um, transpire. Did you think anything differently? or No, I agree with all that. I think the last point you were making there is a good one about um, you know, Liverpool, obviously a brilliant team, have great ways of playing. But maybe when it comes to the, the front line, um, it's maybe... A little bit more of you know individual magic and one v one things than maybe you might see from another great side, you know, a Bayern Munich or, or a Manchester City or, or something like that. Um, I think the other things that stood out to me, and, and you're absolutely right, that um, Maguire and Shaw did really, really well. Um, good communication, um, kept good lines, uh, collapsed onto the spaces when you know they needed to, and. Um, they were quite happy for Liverpool to kind of congest themselves in that area. The other thing that stuck out to me was um, Firmino's passing and decision-making, which I think let Liverpool down a little bit in this match. I- I'm often pretty defensive of Firmino because he-, he gets, well, he's had recently a fair bit of criticism for you know the lack of maybe goal output from centre-forward. And-, and I think that, you know people, when they say that, they're they're not missing the fact that his function in the team is to be a facilitator and that there's not a huge goal expectation of him. Um, I think people all understand that. But I do still think that he gets over-the-top criticism about that aspect of things. But in this game, um, I think there were multiple times when Robertson was free on the left in very dangerous areas and he was either slow to get the ball to him or didn't take that pass at all. And there were some other times in terms of when he was dropping deep and linking up with people that the pass wasn't executed very well. Maybe that comes down to what you were saying about the areas being a wee bit congested with maybe like Shakiri and Salah wanting to be in similar spaces and that maybe making it difficult for Firmino to get the right pass, you know, with it being congested. But I felt that let them down a wee bit too. Um, but yeah, overall, they, they just couldn't really make... Um, the chances and the, the kind of moments where they wanted to make a kind of 1v1 uh, individual thing happen and make that Manchester United cope with it really, really well. Uh, in terms of opportunities for Manchester United, well, their first half opportunities seem to be mainly for me from pretty direct counter-attacking, uh, trying to get Marcus Rashford in behind. It didn't quite come off on a few occasions. He was caught offside. But uh, later on in the second half, they did get chances. Uh, Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba had shots saved and Rashford had a kind of counter-attacking run, um, which fizzled out due to Fabinho. But it seemed to me that their plan nearly paid off this kind of defend and then counter um, until late on and then maybe late on also introduce 
Cavani as more of a fixed point attacker to build some things around. Uh, do you want to talk me through any of kind of that, anything you saw in relation to that, and any chances? And also tell me, Gavin, do you think that Manchester United can sustain a title challenge? And is there any January transfer window business that you'd want to do if you were them? Yeah, so I, I thought the chance that I would want to speak about the most was the, I think it was the Bruno Fernandes one, where Harry Maguire plays a, an excellent ball in between the lines uh, and finds Marcus Rashford, who's then able to drive it. Trent Alexander-Arnold, he's driving inside at him and fair play to Luke Shaw because he absolutely bombs past him, offering the, the overlap. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a, a lovely sort of controlled cutback from Shaw. It seems like it's you know, he didn't just blast it. It was a, a nice move. And then Fernandez running in and probably should have done a little bit better um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the position he's in, the calibre of player he is as well. Um, it's a nice save by Alisson, but I think that that was the chance where I thought, you know, you have cut Liverpool right open there in ways that they tend to do to opposition teams. Um, so I, I really like that. And I think that was, for me, a moment where I believe that Manu maybe had a very specific game plan in terms of trying to frustrate Liverpool, trying to let them make these mistakes, let, in terms of positional mistakes and let the gaps uh, develop. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really interesting, and and I, I think that can Man United challenge for the title? I don't see why not. Um, it's difficult. Um, you know, you're up against some real quality opposition week in, week out. But I I think that the gap between Man U, Liverpool, Man City maybe isn't there uh, as much as we would think maybe in previous years. And I'm not necessarily sure that's because Manchester United are great. I think that there was just always going to be a drop-off in terms of the performances of Liverpool and Man City from where they were at. So that that's my sort of thoughts, and I think that that'll be really interesting to see how how it goes. Would would you say that they've got a chance? Uh, p- potentially, I, I guess the things I would say would be that it's actually very early on. Um, so I know this feels like the middle of the season for us, given the time of the year. Um, but in, in terms of games played, um, well, you know, there's there's a lot. To go, uh, Manchester United and Liverpool have both played eighteen games, so a lot of football to be played. Um, I think that if we look at the kind of underlying stats um, prior to this match, um, in terms of expected goals difference per ninety, Manchester City were top with zero point nine one, Liverpool were second with zero point seven seven, and Manchester United are in sixth with zero point three six per ninety. So it's not really on that basic, you know, one stat. It's not really the stat of, uh, you know, a title, uh, a champion, really. Um, but it's a very strange season. I think, you know, it's going to be um, interesting to see what happens in terms of match congestion, in terms of potential injuries that players might pick up, muscle injuries and so on, due to the amount of football they're having to play in a squeezed amount of time. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of of the view that, the, the underlying numbers don't really put Manchester United in the picture as being a title contender really right now. Um, but, you know, this is a strange season. It's possible. And just in terms of what you were saying about the um, the chance there as well for Fernandes, I, I thought it was a, 
a really good chance, like you say, the type of chance that you'd probably expect to see maybe from you know Liverpool. Um, re- really promising to see Shaw uh, getting that run, that overlap, and also for Rashford to have the patience and, and decision-making to pick him out. Uh, disappointing finish from Bruno Fernandes, and I, I thought this was, this was a poor game for him. I think um, after a sensational start to his career um, at Manchester United um, and being, you know, a kind of one-man attacking machine for them. He's, he's, his, his stats in terms of the kind of unique little things are pretty incredible in terms of, like, he's... He, I think he's top in the English Premier League for through balls, but he's also really high up for pressure. He's obviously... He's had, um, what, 11 goals, although five of them are penalties. He's also got seven assists. So, yeah, in, incredible numbers. But the last month, there's been a bit of a drop-off for him. Um, and in the first half of this match... He was not involved. Um, you know, completed very, very few passes, and that's that's quite rare for him. You know, he's usually one of Manchester United's most involved players. I think if if you look at um, the detail for uh, how many times somebody receives the ball in the Premier League for his position, he's incredibly high up. Um, so he, he was uninvolved and wasn't really contributing, and that was. Interesting note, and and for me that kind of underlines the fact that he really should have done a bit better with that chance. It was a pity for him and Manchester United that he didn't take it. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, um, we'll wait and see how it plays out. But I, I don't think that they're going to be able to hang on and win the title. I, I think that Manchester City are really coming roaring back into things, uh, and they're the real team to watch. But also, once Liverpool get kind of through this sticky patch. Um, they, they'll get a good run of results again. What about the the January transfer question? If you were going to do anything for Manchester United, is there something you would do? It's difficult, right? It's a difficult window in terms of trying to bring players in. Um, yep. I think that I think if if I'm Manchester United, I guess the thing that I'm probably most worried about is. Is having goals from from different areas. Uh, I think you mentioned obviously Bruno Fernandez and his importance. And as soon as he starts to drop off, you feel like there's a a drop off in their overall performance. So I'd be looking for someone that can help create and score um, from the midfield. I know obviously they've got you know uh, some talented players in the squad and some people that can contribute. But I would want maybe something else. I don't think I think the drop off from. Uh, from you, you've got Sorry. Donny Donny Van de Beek just sitting there, forty million pound transfer just not being used. Surely he's that kind of guy that that contributes similarly to Fernandez if he actually got a game. No, he, he just I just feel like he he just doesn't quite fit. I think Van der Beek, and I don't know why, but it just doesn't feel like from Wait. what I've seen, he's just not adapted well to English football. Uh, I think that's harsh. I, I think you need to be given a chance to adapt, much like you know we've maybe spoken about players that in, in Scottish football. You know, uh, Cedric Eaton we spoke about before the show getting a chance to kind of bed in. I, I think the problem with Van der Beek is that you know you probably be playing in a similar role to Fernandez, um, who's become kind of undroppable though. Maybe he does need a rest, and then also you've got the conundrum of how does Pogba fit into that midfield? Um, you know, surely he's not a right midfielder um, for many more matches in Liverpool. Um, 
so I, I don't I don't know. I take your point that they need, you know, maybe you know, in your view they need goals, but I think the players are in the squad for that. They've also got uh, Ahmad Diallo who they brought in, you know, right young right winger. Um obviously he's you know very new and, and uh, very young, so maybe he's not somebody that's going to be able to contribute straight away. But it, it would I don't know, it just seems like they need to if they're gonna make some transfer moves, they need to be thinking more than one window ahead, you know, and be thinking, you know, how do these people fit in? You know, there's no point landing with another um, person in the same position as Fernandez and, and Van de Beek, in my view. And keep in mind, they've got Cavani as well, you know, who, who came on this game and, and can, you know, give them goals. But anyway, um, that that's uh, our thoughts on kind of Manchester United and, and whether they can sustain a, a title challenge. Um, Liverpool have, of course, as we touched on there, been affected by injuries, you know, to Van Dijk, Nabi Keita, Diogo Jota, they seem quite reticent um, about doing transfer business in this window. Um, but do you think they should, Gavin? And, and you know what for? What, what are your kind of thoughts? Desperately need a centre back, right? Need something uh, to help alleviate the pressure there. Um, I think the, the weird thing about Liverpool is I think the the drop off as soon as the front the front three aren't playing uh, or as soon as you know. They're not clicking. There's not. Uh, so you've got what Origi um, and who, Jota. Who they yeah, sorry, Jota as well. Sorry, um, it's just a t- it's a tough one when you're looking to recruit for elite teams. It's probably harder than it is a team Absolutely. that's been over the road. Um, you know, like what do you do? Do you do you stick? Do you twist? Do you mm-hmm. uh, trust that you can ride the storm with all these injuries? Do you? Yep. Do you do you make a short-term loan move for maybe a more experienced player that you can bring in who's maybe not getting minutes somewhere? Mm. It's just such a, a difficult uh, situation for for these clubs, and I don't envy the you know the head of recruitment at Liverpool because I think they are coming to a moment where they're going to start needing to make some some big decisions. Not that I think Salah, Mane, or Firmino are going to drop off a cliff, but they're also you know all getting o- older now. Um, I think yeah. you've got you've got the Henderson getting older. They've got a core squad that out with the sort of fullbacks is is aging, and it's and they, they play a hell of a lot of minutes as well. So you know these guys, Manny, Salah, and Firmino, they're what they're all about to be twenty nine together, and they've played a huge amount of football over the last eighteen months. I think you're really right, Gavin, to point out that it's it, it you know it feels maybe from the outside like. You know, if, if you were playing as Liverpool and football manager, where it's a joy, you can just you know purchase a hundred million pound striker and just you know slot them in. But it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, you you've got um, a lot of difficulties if you've got these three guys who are sensational um, and part of a you know title winning uh, collective. But you're going to have to think about you know what's the next move? How do we phase one of them out? And you, you probably only want to bring in somebody that's at the level of playing that would want to be starting straight away. So, yeah, difficult task, isn't it? Really, really um, quite a tough thing for them to do. But to, to kind of sum up there, you're thinking, though, that the task would maybe be to bring in a centre-back potentially in this window? Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's fair enough. Um, but, again, I guess you have the, the same kind of issues, you know, once Van Dijk and Matib and Gomez are all fit and, you know, um, then you know also what happens with Fabinho? Do you move him into midfield and does that displace somebody else? Oh, what a difficult task it is to have so many good footballers, huh? I know, right? <laughs> uh, 
Um, finally, um, any thoughts on the performance of the Scottish representatives in this match? So we had Andy Robertson, of course, playing at left-back for Liverpool and Scott McTominay in midfield for uh, Manchester United. Thoughts on how they got on? I thought McTominay in particular was was really good this game. There's a, a really nice clip that I've seen on, uh, on Twitter where it's him sort of... Uh, Avoiding pressure, carrying the ball out, and and picking out some nice passes. I I I didn't see the full ninety, so I don't want to say that was his his whole game. But I looked at some of the data and and this performance, and it looks like McTominay was was pretty solid in terms of his contribution. Um, lots of tackles, carrying the ball forward, you know, high pass accuracy. So I'll put it back onto you as you watch the full ninety and and what your thoughts are, and let you uh, bring my quick take on McTominay being good down a peg or two. Uh, yeah, mixed thoughts about McTominay in this game, as I often have when I watch him in midfield. Um, I like the guy. You know, he obviously you know what you're going to get from him. He, he's hardworking. He commits. He's uh, um, clearly a good guy that very much cares about playing for Manchester United. Um, but there's a few issues from watching him in this match. I, I do want to say, you know, there, there were positives, um, but... The, the issues, I guess, are the things that kind of stuck out to me. There was one moment, uh, and I mentioned this one because it, it might well be in the highlights package. There's a chance for Robertson, who kind of um, sort of sclaffs it, and it, it goes kind of past the near post when he's inside the box on his left foot. But that chance doesn't really come unless um, McTominay overcommits in the midfield. Um, he, he's kind of you know challenging Manny, and and he doesn't really need to take the risk of kind of overcommitting and trying to win the ball past Manny. Manny is his back to go and he gets turned and that chance for Robertson doesn't happen if not for that. So th- that was kind of just an example of, yes, that's an attempt to tackle. You know, that will show up as impressing somebody and being active on. But, you know, it's sometimes better um, to hold your structure and not, you know, kind of dive in in these ways. And in terms of passing, yeah, I've seen the clip as well where he kind of evaded the challenge and played a nice long ball forward. But, um, you know, it's, it's not as is, is kind of... There's a reason that there's only one of those, right, highlighted. It's not like this is a reel of uh, 10 moments in the match where he's skipped past people and played passes. Uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of unique and out of the ordinary for him to do that, which is also why it gets clipped up and highlighted because you don't really expect it from him. So, you know, in, in terms of things that are repeatable and that he's really delivering um, on the pitch for you, you know, I, w- I would, again, be a little bit cautious about celebrating that too much. And again, that's not to say that that's not a good thing. You know, he did well in that moment, obviously, but, um, you know, um, it's just kind of one one moment and one pass forward. Um, but overall, I thought he did fine. It was a, a performance in which the midfield for, for Manchester United had a hell of a lot of work, a very, very difficult task. Um, two of them in there, um, Bruno Fernandes ahead of them, doing very, very little in terms of defensive work. Um, and the, the flanks kind of exposed. Martial and Pogba haven't worked very hard on the sides, but obviously McTominay and Fred haven't to help out with that and being aware of the three forwards in behind them up against the, the defence. So such a such a huge amount of work in terms of the physics, the, the physical aspect of things, but also the kind of mental toll that that's taken on you, you know, that constant need to be aware. So um, credit to him for that. I, I thought that, you know, he, he did fine. Um, what about Robertson? Any thoughts on his performance from what you saw, Gavin? Yeah, I think he 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 got forward well at times. I think that 
he done the things that you sort of expect from Andy Robertson. Um, I th- I think for me, it just felt like this was more about what Man U done uh, mm. to to nullify him rather than him being him or uh, Alexander Arnold being bad. I think it was more down to to Man U's game plan that that kept them in certain areas and and didn't really give them the space to attack as as they would normally. So uh, I don't think he did anything wrong. I don't think he'd done anything particularly great either, if I'm being honest, from what I've seen. I, I thought Robertson did well in terms of being an option often for Liverpool. Um, he got away, you know, Pogba was the right midfielder and he got away from him a lot um, and got into really good areas. Just didn't quite necessarily get the best pass to him or, or make the best connection when he did get in those areas. But, you know, he was a, a threat. Playing slightly different than Alexander-Arnold. Arnold stayed a lot deeper um, for me in this game than Robertson, who seemed to have a bit more licence, or maybe it was just due to who he was up against. Um, but also the, the, the crossing, um, there was one absolutely sensational cross from Robertson um, that very nearly would have been a goal, if not for a great defending from Maguire. Out with that one, which was an amazing ball in, he wasn't able to deliver maybe the, the level of uh, deliveries into the box that you might hope from him. So a, a mixed game from him, but a fine one. And again, what was a, a very tough match for everybody involved, I felt. And also the final thing I want to say about it is that it was a nil-nil. It's a game that's had, um, I guess, a bit of fun poked at it on Twitter for being um, so dull. I actually really enjoyed the first half. Um, the first half was a good um, kind of battle for me. Uh, loads of tactics, interesting things to note. Lots of nice football from people like uh, Thiago. Second half was pretty dull, um, even though there was maybe some more chances, um, but it was a bit kind of scrappier and end-to-end. Um, but yeah, just just a, a, an interesting game from my perspective um, to you know see that some people can like nil-nil draws for other people they're kind of um an absolute kind of no-no in terms of football um but i think it's fair to say that super sunday in terms of english football maybe needs to um reconsider their use of that uh, particular moniker because i don't think the match would be described by super even by somebody like me who's sort of okay with nil-nil draws um, <laughs> but yeah that, that was our our venture um south of the wall uh, into the english premier division uh, for today. Um, we're going to go now for our, my, our kind of final section here, which is a, a kind of whirlwind tour um, through each Premiership team's performance to date this season. Just a very brief comments and then basically a score between 1 and 10 for every team in the league. So, Gavin, uh, let's start at the top, right? Um, Rangers, what are you scoring them out of 10 this season? I'm going to say 10. And um... The reason for that is how can you mark someone down for when they're undefeated this far into the season? They've won the old firm derbies. They've yes, they've dropped points, you know, uh, in terms of what three draws, four draws. Um, but I don't see how you can you can particularly mark them down. Even when they've had moments of of not playing as strong, they've still won games. They've performed admirably in Europe, topping a, a difficult group against Benfica made some really smart transfer business and yeah I just don't see how you can you can drop them down any marks really um and I'd are, be we, in- um, are we including cups in this um at all in terms of our kind of thinking on things uh, I mean obviously they've gone out of the league cup at the quarterfinal stage to St Mirren um would that come into your thinking at all or are we just kind of thinking about premiership uh I guess I guess we could, seeing as I mentioned Europe. Um, so I'll let you 
peg me down on that one then. Tell me why it's not a 10. Well, because of that, basically, <laughs> that's all. Um, if it wasn't for that, I'd probably agree with you that it should be a 10. Um, but I am going to say, yeah, they, they, they shouldn't be getting knocked out of the League Cup at the quarterfinal stage. Um, so I'm going to call it a 9 for them. Yeah, you sticking with ten? That's fair. If you are, let's yeah, move on to yeah. Let, let's move on to second place still for now. Celtic, what are you scoring them? Uh, I think it's a five. Um, okay, Celtic, uh, which is maybe a little bit harsh, but uh, I think it's hard to find ways to be positive about Celtic right now. Um, performances haven't been good. Uh, the way they've handled themselves particularly Neil Lennon and the media hasn't been good. Whether it was Neil Lennon that really wanted the trip to Dubai or not, the club still sanctioned it so uh, that doesn't sit well with me. Um, hmm. Yeah, and for continually giving first team minutes to Shane Duffy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's my, my real takeaways. I can't really be too positive about Celtic and I'd struggle. You know, it's easy to say, well, they're second. Of course, they should be at least second. Um, yeah. So when you, I think when you look deeper into everything that's going on, you know some of the performances. I, th- I think back to the game where they scraped a one 0 against Dundee United. Um, they they played just awful stuff, and it was just Ryan Christie, um, doing a name and brophy imitation, uh, or well, not even an imitation because that's what he does. But uh, yeah, just lots of pot shots from you know whatever uh, XG locations, but. Yeah, I, I don't see the many positives for Celtic this season. Okay. Being very generous, giving them a five then. Uh, I'm going to have to peg you down again <laughs> because uh, they went out of... Right, they went out of the League Cup right in the second round to Ross County. Um, pretty disastrous in Europe, I would say. Um, and, yeah, uh, very poor in the games against Rangers. And like you pointed to, you know, Second is a minimum. They don't get any points from me for being second. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say uh, four out of ten for Celtic season. That's been a bit generous. Let's let's move on then. So how about Hibs who are in third, Gavin? What, what's your thoughts on their season to date? Yeah, so I've given Hibs a seven out of ten. I think they've done what they're supposed to do, really. I think they've got a, a decent-sized budget, um, you know, challenging for third should realistically be their aim uh, and they're doing so uh, there's been some improvements uh, under Jack Ross this year but there's also still some deficiencies that they need to address but I've been particularly impressed with some of the recruitment strategies getting Kevin Nisbet in uh, Jamie Murphy in on, on loan I thought was a nice move um, Jack Snurvin and Chris Cadden recently I think are two particularly good transfers for a team pushing for third so uh, I think yeah you can't really Mark Hibbs down too far. They've you know they've taken points off the old firm on occasions. They they drew with Rangers and Celtic at Easter Road, uh, both in two each games. Uh, and if it wasn't for a, a very late goal for Celtic, it would have been a, a win. Um so yeah, I think Hibbs should be happy with where they're at. And I think it's just a case of can trying to continually build. And you know, you've got to remember the the difficulties in which Jack Ross took over. The club, uh, Paul Heckenbottom's team, weren't particularly performing great. There was a lot of players that weren't great fits, uh, and they've managed to can, sort of continue to develop, and they look like they've built a solid foundation to grow from. 
Cool. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Gavin. I think I'm not going to contest your score in there. Um, mixed results for Hibs. I mean, even quite recently, right? So they had what the heavy going to Livingston, and before that, they lost to Ross County at home as well. But on the flip side, like you say, there's been some good results. They're up in third. They've also got what a League Cup semi final this weekend with St Johnston, so potentially be at a, a cup final. So I would the score a seven. Let's move down one spot and go to Aberdeen. Thoughts about Aberdeen's season to date and a score, Gavin? Yeah, so I've given Aberdeen a six. Um, I think that it's it's a six, but it was still close to a seven. I think I mentioned it earlier. What's Aberdeen's... Uh, what are they trying to achieve and how close are they, they to achieving the thing they're trying to achieve? And I can't mark them down too badly for only being one point behind Hibs with two games in hand. They... Whilst the, the COVID situation that happened earlier in the season wasn't particularly great for them, they've still managed to get out of it. They sold Scott McKenna and were able to keep things together at the back um, to a relative standard. Yes, there's deficiencies in terms of how they play. Yes, they're not the prettiest to watch. But what's their ambition? Are they close to achieving it? And the answer is yes. So I can't mark them too negatively for that, in my opinion. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's fair enough again. Um, I mean, if Two games in hand of his, um, but have only you know one point behind them, so they could be up in third place very, very soon. Um, mixed results, similar to you. Um, I guess the things that kind of stick out to me are um, that they went out of the, the League Cup to St Mirren um, pretty early on, so that was, what, in the second um, round. I, I felt that they put up a reasonable showing in Europe, so went out of the Europa League obviously at the qualifying stage, but it was the sporting club, the Portugal, you know, not, not a terrible team to be put. Um, and, and yeah, results wise, well, we've obviously got the Ross County defeat fresh in our minds from the weekend, but there have been some other reasonable results. So yeah, I would echo the, the six that you've given them. Let's move down another spot to Livingston. What, what are your thoughts about Livingston? So I've given Livingston a seven uh, for their season. Um, I think, it's probably mostly based on uh, the change when they brought in David Martindale, and they're now in a really strong position where they're well unbeaten in the last eight or nine games. So, um, with I think it's eight wins, uh, one draw in the last nine. So that's a, a huge, you know, level of consistency for Livingston, and and some real positives there. And you know, for Livingston to be challenging the top six, I think that's. That's a positive, right? That's that's what you would say the ambition was. Um, they don't look like stopping. I thought they had a really good tactical plan against Celtic. They play them again on Wednesday. Uh, I'll be interested to see how Celtic cope um, with that again. Uh, you know, after Livingston really applied the pressure to them, and I think they've got uh, a few good players. And I also like. I think Livingston are one of the few teams that give good players or give assets longer term deals. So. For example, Jack Fitzwater's on a 2023 contract. Um, who I really like and I'm quite high on. So I think, yeah, credit to Livingston. And, and they're not scared to try different markets as well. It's obviously not always worked out for them, but you know they've brought in players from different places. So I like what Livingston are doing. And, and yeah, I think a seven felt good. Yeah, I think that's fair comment. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to give Livingston an eight, though. Um, I think... Yes, leading up to Martindale's appointment, things weren't brilliant for them, but I think the change under him, the results under him have been so good um, that they merit. And, and for their kind of league place being up in fifth, 
but also you know the points that they've accumulated, the amount of distance they put between themselves and the kind of relegation spots. Um, it's just fantastic. They're also in the League Cup semi-final. Um, they play St Mirren on Sunday, um, so there's a, a chance that they'd be in a cup final. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really quite high on how they've done so far this season. So an, an eight for them. Um, what about our team in sixth, Dundee United? You got a score for them? Uh, I'm going to give Dundee United a five. Uh, and it might seem harsh for a team that's just been promoted that are in the top six. But Dundee United are single-handedly under Mickey Mellon depreciating the value of their best a- asset in Lawrence Shankland. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned about how things are going for Dundee United. I don't particularly see it turning the corner. Um they just draw far too many games. They don't create a lot of good chances, and there doesn't appear to be a way forward for them in terms of uh, really pushing for six. And I, and I think if if you know a couple of these teams, so for example, they've played two more games than Motherwell. If Motherwell win their two games, they're only three points behind them. Um, I do worry whether they're going to be able to sustain that top six, and I think that's down to playing style. I don't think you can grind your way out to be in sixth. In the Scottish Premiership. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that, that's an interesting bit of detail you're giving us about uh, Dundee United, and I think it's fair to say it's been a a, a not kind of stellar year for them. Um, I, I guess the thing I would kind of caveat that with is it is their first season back in the top flight, um, so you know that that kind of maybe tempers my expectations for them. Um, so I, I think I would give them, let's say a a five for me for this season um, uh, and you know maybe can I wait and see how the rest of the season goes for them but a five at the moment due to lack of creativity lack of kind of um, chances that they're making but I think that that's the kind of top six as things stand um, we'll leave things uh, there for this week and you can tune in next time where we'll give us the table um, so that, that'll be everything for for this week's podcast thank you very much to everybody that's listened in and also to those that joined in on the live stream um before the episode gavin before we go is there anything you want to kind of uh, leave the listeners with just thank you for tuning in and uh, we appreciate all the support on twitch and twitter that we've had recently as well and and hopefully you'll be able to join us for a, a stream in the future uh come chat football with us that's what we're here for um and hope you've enjoyed tonight's podcast me to the water hold my hand as something turns to me love me every night drown me in the water hold my hand as something turning me see it through my eyes love me like no other and hold my hand as something turns to me